Chapter 23 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kristen Hand. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter 23 by Helen Campbell. Jack Ashore. An easy prey for land sharks and sharpers. Life on the St. Mary's and at the Sailor's Snug Harbor. Love for the sea is as old as the story of man, and tales of shipwreck have fascinated and thrilled adventurous boys from the days of Homer to our own. For English-speaking people, it is intensified by long usage. To be born on an island implies knowledge of how best to get away from it. And this may be one reason why emigration is the natural instinct of the English or their descendants. In spite, too, of all knowledge to the contrary, nothing convinces the average boy that Jack's life is anything but a series of marvelous adventures in which he is generally victor, and where the hardship is much more than made up for by the excitement and the glory. Even Jack himself shares the delusion, and no matter what peril the voyage has held, he reships with alacrity to repeat the experience, or even to find it his last. Sailors' songs are full of the same faith. There's a sweet little cherub that sits up aloft to keep watch for the life of poor Jack, wrote Dibden a hundred years ago, adding a thousand songs of sailors' life to the long list already in existence. And many a runaway boy has looked up involuntarily as winds rose and sails filled and strained, for the guardian promised to all who tempt the sea. Years ago, an old sailor, the mere wreck of a man, was brought to one of the city hospitals and laid on one of the little white beds. Shipwrecked and for days floating on an open raft, parched with thirst, well-nigh starved, and seeing his companions day by day fall before him, he had been picked up at last unconscious, though still holding on his knee the head of a little cabin boy for whom he had denied himself food, and with whom he had shared his scanty ration of water. The child died before port was reached, and Jack found resting place in the great hospital to which one of the owners of the vessel sent him. He had broken his left arm in the wreck and tied it up in such fashion as he could, and now the act of breaking the arm again had to be accomplished, since the knitting of the bones had been all wrong. To this bed there gravitated, as if by instinct, a boy who knew the hospital well and whose sunny face had for years brought cheer to forlorn souls who had found refuge there. From babyhood he had said, I shall be a doctor like my father and make everybody well, and he followed the daily round of the hospital physicians and surgeons with unflagging interest. Many men of many nations had lain here, but never a sailor till this bronzed, wrinkled, weather-beaten wreck, who looked out from under his grizzled eyebrows and put out his hand to this child, the reminder of one for whom he had so nearly lost his life. Tell me about it, please, the boy said. Tell me every word of it. And the old sailor began. More, more, the boy urged at any stop, his shining eyes intently fixed on the old Sinbad's face. I want to know everything about it. You can't unless you tries it for yourself, said Jack at last. And I wouldn't say as anybody'd better do that. It's a dog life, and what's the end? Why, you're stranded, and maybe in port, and eat the bread of charity. 
you that has worked day and night and been knocked round worse than any dog. You're stranded if you don't end in a wreck as there's no saving you from. Seven times I've been shipwrecked, seven times, and each time I've said to myself, Jack, you're a fool if you ever leave dry land again. But I did. The sea draws you like. I went to Maine to see some folks I had up there, and I smelled the sea and heard it, and all the day long it called me like, Jack, Jack, you ain't in your right place. Why ain't you where you belong? And at last it wasn't in mortal man to stand it another day, and I stole off along a one or two that would have stood in the way if they'd a knowed. I stole off same as I stole off forty year afore, and my mother lying crying for fear I would, and I hain't ever been back since. They're all dead, most likely. You wouldn't take no such notion as that, arter you been wrecked six times, this time making the seventh. You wouldn't now, would you? I believe you want to go again yourself, said the boy after a long shake of the head. I almost do myself. That's the right kind of a boy, exclaimed old Jack with a faint attempt at a hurrah. I knowed you was the right kind of boy the first minute I set eyes on you. Of course I want to go again. And what's more, I shall, soon as this thing is knit, and I'm set up enough to pass muster. You come along, too, and I'll make a sailor out of you, fit to command anything as floats. I would if I could, but you see I made up my mind so long ago to be a doctor, and I don't believe I can change it now. I'll think about it, said the boy. He did think about it, to the consternation of all his kin, and the deep delight of old Jack, who, as his arm mended and strength came back, begged for wood, and evolved from it at last a full-rigged brig, every rope of which the boy presently knew. The curious ferment that comes to the boy even far inland was working in him, and to such purpose that today he is captain of a great ship, and happiest when in mid-ocean. Through him many things have been done to lighten the lot of sailors, nor are his efforts likely to cease till the last voyage comes, and he meets again the old sailor whose words first stirred his longing for the sea. Something like this is the story of thousands who are drawn from remotest distances, and who answer the call once for all. Yet there is no life among workers that holds more certain hardship and privation, or often more utter brutality of treatment. Years of agitation were necessary before any legislation looking to Jack's welfare was brought about, and this came only after an inquiry into general conditions. Isolated cases of barbarity had occasionally stirred public feeling, but as Jack was seldom allowed to testify in his own behalf, and any rebellion came under the head of mutiny and was punished by death, no man had less chance of justice. But the testimony at the first court of inquiry was so hideous in its revelation of what terrors hedged about the life and of what possibilities of despotic power of torture and death were in the hands of the captain of any sailing vessel, that the first shipping act of England was passed without a dissenting voice. Even this was insufficient to check the worst evils of the system, but further legislation brought the needed reforms, and today the British sailor has a fairer chance of justice than most of his brethren. America is not far behind, though our own shipping act was not passed till within recent years. Almost a century before, as the merchant service grew in importance, a society had been formed for the protection of the sailor, known as the Marine Society of New York, which was incorporated in 1770. It sought to make his position a safer one, and to bring some alleviations into the hard lives, but little could be done save in port, 
long cruises rendering any oversight impossible. Then, as now, the chief difficulty lay in the characteristics of Jack himself. With the spirit of adventure which had made him a sailor were bound up also the impulsive, heedless generosity of a child and a warm-heartedness always prompt to relieve fancied distress, and to share with all in trouble of any order. Credulous, simple, and with small capacity for learning any lessons, even from the bitterest experience, Jack, from the day he set foot on shore, was the prey of land sharks and sharpers. With great love for old associations, even when disastrous ones, he was more than likely to make straight for the very spot in which he had suffered most. Add to this the fact that an organized gang of rascals preyed upon him systematically, and it is plain that very active effort would be needed to alter conditions and Jack's own relations to them. The touter for sailors' boarding houses, until the passage of the Shipping Act, had everything in his favor. Payment was made by the owners, and to secure as much of Jack's hard-earned money as possible was the touter's first work. Often, the touter met the incoming vessel and went on board with the pilot. Many a time his operations were of this order. A confederate, stationed in the background, waited while the touter asked his victim where he meant to go. If Jack hesitated or said he did not know, or if he named a preference, the confederate suddenly fell upon him, half stunning him with a heavy blow. "'Take that for your impudence!' was the exclamation of the touter, as he fell upon the confederate for having abused his man, bringing Jack at once to the rescue. Jack is specially sensitive to sympathy, and gratitude to his defender made him quickly agree to go with him, and the touter, having made a small advance, knew that his prey was certain. Jack's heart warmed as he saw the familiar names of the doors on South or Water Streets, the Flowing Sea, the Mariner's Home, and the like. In these dens, where foul women waited and the bar offered every temptation, Jack found a home such as it was till he shipped again, the boarding house keeper charging double and treble prices for everything furnished, sending in the bill to the owners. A frequent charge on the ledger was for a treat for all hands, which would be anywhere from five to ten dollars for each performance. Jack's bill ran up at a frightful rate. Often he found himself not only without a cent, but in debt, and his earnings for the next voyage already mortgaged. In a single night, the fruit of a three-year's cruise might disappear, and often Jack found himself beaten, robbed, and on the sidewalk, with no knowledge of how it had come, and quite powerless to find or convict his assailants. The Shipping Act ended much of this. In 1868, there were 169 sailors' boarding houses in New York City, in which 15,000 sailors were annually robbed of very nearly $3 million. Today there are less than a hundred, forty of which are licensed, and many means are adopted to secure to the sailor protection from temptation and some of the comforts of shore life. To anyone with any interest in the fortunes of poor Jack, the Seamen's Exchange appeals at once. It is an unpretentious building fronting on Water Street, and opened in April 1872. In his address at its dedication, Mr. Beecher said, this building gives the sailor comforts which he will appreciate, and such influences will preach religion to him, even if Christianity is never mentioned. From statistics kept here, it is found that there are always about 3,000 sailors in port, while 60,000 yearly come and go, all of them, with few exceptions, reporting at the Seamen's Exchange. On the first floor is a savings bank and a large and cheerful reading room. The basement has a clothing and outfitting store, where everything Jack requires is furnished, good in quality, 
and moderate in price. On the second floor is a hall which will hold 800, and above are the offices of the United States Shipping Commission. Here one finds a bulletin for names and destination of ships wanting men, and usually a row of sailors studying it. When they have settled to their own satisfaction which vessel is the desirable one, there are various formalities not known to the past. Printed legal forms are now in use for masters, men, and owners. The wages, service, and food are precisely stipulated. The master binds himself to pay $35 a month and give a certain dietary. A day's allowance is one pound of bread, one and a half pounds of beef, half a pound of flour, one-eighth of an ounce of tea, half an ounce of coffee, two ounces of sugar, and three quarts of water. Rations of desiccated or fresh vegetables are often issued, and every precaution is taken against scurvy, which in the past was one of the worst afflictions of the sailor. His quarters are cleaner, his food better, and his life in all respects brighter than even a generation ago. Yet even now hardly a week passes without some tale of outrage on the high seas, and it is found that it is easier to deal with Jack than with Jack's masters. The mercantile service, in which there is chance of rising, and which, though not on the same footing as in the past, when men of education and influence were merchant captains, is regaining a portion of its diminished prestige. There is a training school for this under the control of the Board of Education. This, on the school ship St. Mary's, stationed in New York Harbor at the foot of East 23rd Street. An average of 75 pupils is found on board, and the officers of the ship are detailed from the United States Navy. There is the usual spelling, reading, writing, English grammar, geography, arithmetic, and navigation, and in seamanship as follows. 1. Making all knots, splices, hitches, bends, clinches, etc. on board ship. Worming, parceling, and serving ropes. Turning in dead eyes, securing lanyards, and rattling down rigging. 2. Learning the names of all spars, blocks, standing and running rigging, and their uses. 3. Learning the names of the different parts of a sail, bending, loosing, furling, and reefing sails. 4. Rowing, sculling, and steering boats and handling them under sail. 5. Boxing compass, steering by compass, and taking compass bearings. 6. Marking log and lead lines, heaving the lead, and calling out soundings correctly. 7. Using palm and needle, sewing a seam, and working an eyelet hole. 8. Swimming. 9. The colors and arrangements of running lights. The summer vacation is occupied by a long cruise, often to Europe, and the system has done much to make it impossible for its graduates to fall into the traps that always beset the path of Jack ashore. Last on the list of methods for serving him come the loan libraries, the giving out of which began in 1859. Forty-five volumes, most of them, unfortunately, of a rather heavy order, are put up in a neat wooden case and sent from ship to ship. Forty-five hundred of these small libraries are now afloat, a total of 185,000 volumes. Nearly 400 new libraries were sent to sea in 1890, and over 400 were reshipped, these being used by over 10,000 men, all of whom call for travels, history, and light reading, and wear this portion of the library out, the many theological volumes remaining generally untouched. 
There are numerous Bethels and homes for seamen in active operation, and missionaries who understand Jack are always about the docks watching for incoming vessels, ready to give good advice and a word of warning to the sailor with full pockets and a mind to empty them as fast as possible. By this means he has saved many disasters, and the savings bank has more and more depositors. Chiefest among the homes, and known to sailors in all parts of the world, is the Sailor's Snug Harbor at Staten Island, where hundreds of seamen have cast anchor, and like the old whalers at New Bedford and Nantucket, lie in dock gradually going to pieces, and glad of quiet harbor. The Sailor's Snug Harbor was the gift of one man, and owes its origin to Captain Robert Richard Randall, the son of a Scotchman who was captain of a privateer in the Revolutionary War. When the Spanish governor of New Orleans declared in 1775 that his port was open to Yankee privateers, Captain Randall appeared there, and in the sale of many prizes made, for those days an immense fortune, all of which was left to his son, Robert. Robert alternated between New York and New Orleans, preferring the climate of the former and finally exchanging estates with a Mr. Farquhar, who was of the same mind as to New Orleans. In this way, Captain Randall, for the son took the father's title, came into possession of a large tract of land between 8th and 10th Streets on Broadway. Early in 1801, Captain Randall made his will, and Alexander Hamilton and Daniel Tompkins drew it up. Many legacies and annuities were arranged for, but the bulk of the property still remained untouched, nor could he determine what use to make of it. How was the money made? asked Hamilton. In honest privateering? Then, as sailors made it, why not give it to sailors, said Hamilton, and this word turned the scale. A home was provided for seamen, and the mayor and recorder of New York, the president and vice president of the Chamber of Commerce, the rector of Trinity Church, and the minister of the First Presbyterian Church were made perpetual trustees. For thirty years, the relatives fought the case from court to court, till in 1830 the Supreme Court of the United States decided against them and sustained the provisions of the will. New York proved undesirable, and in 1838, a farm of 160 acres was bought on Staten Island, and the buildings were erected, which stand today quite unchanged and absolutely unlike anything else the country owns. The foregoing history, the tale as it has been handed down, not only by word of mouth, and that mouth the combined voice of all old New York, but the actual record to be read of all men in every chronicle of the city to be found on library shelves. Clute, who is one of the best authorities, gives it in full detail, and the rest follow with more or less minuteness. Yet no myth of God or tale of ancient history is farther from the mark, and with none is apparently less need of being so. It is a mystery unsolved and unsolvable, why tradition has stepped in and covered the field so plainly, the property of truth, yet so firmly rooted is it in every mind that even proof of the strongest hardly takes hold. It is to Captain Trask that we owe the delving out and present orderly arrangement of the real story of the snug harbor. Like the rest, he accepted the old version till forced to believe that there was a screw loose at some point. For months he burrowed in old records with unfailing patience and pertinacity, and this is what he found to be the actual state of the case. So far from being the obscure Scotchman he is made to personate, Robert Richard Randall was the son of Thomas Randall, a wealthy merchant of New York City, one of the founders of the Chamber of Commerce, and one of those who drew up the Constitution of the Marine Society. 
No man was more prominent in his day. He was a shipmaster and had fitted out many privateers in his time, accumulating thus a considerable fortune. When Washington came to New York, Thomas Randall was the coxswain of the barge, manned by members of the Marine Society that rowed him ashore. His son went into business with him, the firm being Stuart Randall and Son. He also was a shipmaster, and his name stands on the records of the Marine Society and the Chamber of Commerce as captain, that title belonging only to shipmasters. He was a personal friend of Alexander Hamilton and co-director with him of the Bank of New York, and the Broadway property was bought by him sometime before his death. As lifelong member of the Marine Society, his interest in sailors was naturally of the strongest, and being a bachelor, he felt no urgent claim on his money in any other direction, and thus planned to benefit sailors, always the most helpless of men, when off their own element. It is plainly then an impossibility that Alexander Hamilton should have ever held the conversation attributed to him, or that Captain Randall could have replied as he is credited with having done. Here was a man of wealth and prominence living on one of the finest estates on Manhattan Island, the founder of a great institution, the son of a man still more prominent in commercial life, and yet, 83 years after his death, when they came to erect a bronze statue on the ground of the sailor's snug harbor, distorted legend and fiction were all that were left of his memory, and the sculptor did not dare to model his bronze image in the garb of a sea captain, nor to carve the word captain on the granite pedestal, and even the place of his burial was in doubt. There is no more doubt. The records of the Marine Society show the transfer of his body from old St. Mark's Churchyard to the quiet spot where it lies today, and where, on the day it was born to this final resting place, all the old sailors in uniform stood bareheaded as their benefactor passed up through the long ranks massed about the gates. Never was memory more beclouded in the minds of men he sought to help, and both versions are given here as an illustration of the difficulties the modern historian must sometimes face. At the Snug Harbor dock, at least a dozen old salts are generally in waiting, some with baskets and other articles of their own making to sell, others ready to man a boat or perform any service as guide. At the end of the dock, others more indifferent to gain, sit and look off at the shipping, generally with profound disdain. At this point, the island is separated from the Jersey shore by a narrow strait known as the Kill Von Cole, where there only small craft repair, and sailors, accustomed to square-rigged vessels, ships, brigs, and barks, refuse to recognize fore and aft rigging, and look beyond to the tall mass of outgoing vessels. Leaving them behind, one comes in a few moments to wide-shaven lawns and old trees, back of which rise the many buildings in which Robert Randall's bequest does its work. The main buildings are each 65 feet long and 100 deep, the wings 51 by 100, the five making an entire frontage of 500 feet. Back of these is the Hospital of Gray Sandstone and the many buildings occupied by the governor, chaplain, and other officials. This hospital is said to have a perfect system of ventilation, and delegations of sanitary experts come to study its workings. Facing the main entrance is the monument, a square block of granite with inscriptions on the four sides. A flat obelisk, looking a little stunted as to growth, is on top, the whole and almost exact copy of the monument to Alexander Hamilton in Trinity Churchyard. This was the first memorial of the founder, whose bones lie beneath, and the second is a statue by St. Godin, erected in 1883. 
It is of bronze and has a pedestal of polished granite. Seven years ago, the spot where it stands was mere swampland, which, under the admirable administration of Captain Trask, has been made to blossom like the rose. Back of this is a little lake where the old sailors try their small vessels before sails are made, and along the edge of the lawn are small brick cottages where the fortunate employees of the institution find as snug a harbor as the sailors. The little church is half concealed by trees. Its chaplain, Dr. Jones, ran away from his English home in boyhood and for years went before the mast as sailor. In time his mind turned toward theology and he resolved to become a missionary. From this, after some experience, he returned to the sailors, whose life he knew and for whom few cared, and for many years was minister in the Mariner's Church near the Exchange. Subsequently, he received the appointment to the harbor, and whoever would see one of its most distinctive features should go down in time for service. The chaplain's illustrations are all nautical, and his sermons of the most vigorous order, but many of the old salts who listen care but little, and nod and careen to slumber peacefully on some comrade's shoulder, or straggle out after a time and settle under the trees. "'Oh, don't talk about them things to me,' said one crusty old salt, after an appeal for audience from the chaplain. "'I've been without him sixty year, and I reckon I can stand it for a year or two longer.'" In this village of quite one thousand souls, the first thing that impresses one is the extraordinary cleanliness of the whole, a neatness that is almost painful. The old captains laid up here remember their methods on shipboard and demand floors as white and spotless as the decks of their own ships. Entering the great hall of the central building, one finds the same dainty spotlessness and a sweep of pure air straight from the sea. This is the show place of the institution. The roof is frescoed with ropes and anchors and sails, masts and spars on which birds of all countries perch, and old Neptune keeping guard over all. Fan lights and side lights are of stained glass with nautical designs, and in a series of blue glass windows near the vaulted roof are eight of the principal constellations. Over the main entrance is a sunburst, so arranged with mirrors behind it that it acts as a sundial, the light from it falling on the inlaid star in the center of the hall floor. Opening off from this hall is the library and reading room, and all the offices of the institution are in this main building, the dining rooms being just back of the hall and the dormitories in the wings. Each room holds two men and two beds, and there are bathrooms on each floor. The problem of feeding 800 people at once has been found a troublesome one to grapple with. To serve food enough for this number, promptly and well-cooked, demands all the resources of the kitchen. Things that can be cooked by the quantity are easily managed, but broiling or more delicate operations are impossible. Once, so many longed for fried fish that Captain Trask determined they should have it, and gave his orders to the cook accordingly. At six o'clock in the morning, the whole force of the kitchen turned to, and by dint of hard work, had by twelve o'clock fried enough fish to make a beginning for all. But at this point, the caterer became discouraged and swore never to make the experiment again, two days' work being necessary to provide a full supply for all. But the bill of fare is varied and abundant. The 800, whether captains or the men they may have commanded, sit side by side, and each is served alike by the waiters, who watch the plates to see that all fare equally well. In the basement, baskets, mats, and hammocks are made, and last year some $30,000 were received from this source, averaging about $75 a head. This belongs to the men themselves, who pay for all materials and use the returns in such way as pleases them best. 
The cripples of the institution are provided with wheelchairs and easily move through the corridors and along the smooth roads outside. Under the eaves of some of the buildings are workrooms for their exclusive use, and here they make work baskets and nets. Here, too, for a long time was the iron cage for the one prisoner of the home who could be dealt with in no other way. It was just a case of pure cussedness, explained an old sailor, with long white curls and a wooden leg, which he waved parenthetically. He knowed all the ropes, and he sailed to all the ports there is, but he couldn't seem to hold hisself in. He'd take a turn and haul all the aged infirm ones out of bed, and the colder the day the better, and leave em lying on the floor. He wouldn't take no pains to reform, neither, and so they had to keep him, off and on, in the cage, and he got not minding, but just laying to do it again first chance he got, which is what he did every time. There are old boat swains whose mouths always seem puckered for the whistle, piping on the side. One old captain has in his room, a truly nautical one, small craft of all kinds, the product of his jackknife, standing on chests and even decorating the passageway. Some of the miniature vessels made by these old salts are wonderful exhibits of patient skill. In a little room under a skylight at the top of one of the buildings was, during a recent visit, William Graham, a one-armed naval veteran of Commodore Farragut's fleet, an ingenious and intelligent man, who with his left hand had just completed, after two years' faithful labor, a perfect model of the famous old flagship Hartford. Every block and rope was in working order, every gun in its place between decks. In equipment, rigging, and armament, the model is an exact facsimile of its renowned prototype, all measurements being mathematically calculated, thus giving the model the true proportions and a faithful appearance of the old warship. For a long time, one object of interest was James Spencer, the last survivor of the American frigate Essex, which in 1812 fought two British cruisers in the harbor of Valparaiso. Commodore Farragut was at that time a middy on the Essex, and as long as he lived retained an affection for the old man, who always went to see him when in port. At the last meeting, Jim reported how he found him. The admiral was a-sittin' on a sofy. Jim, says he to me, you and me's got nearly into port. I wonder which one will fetch up first. I said not, but I suspicioned how it would be, and it was. The admiral's death took place in a few days. Spencer insisted on going to the funeral, though in a driving rain, took cold, and speedily died. For many years, Captain Benjamin Gardiner was in command of the cross-rip lightship in Vineyard Sound, a dangerous locality where many a lightship anchored here to warn passing vessels has itself been lost. Other vessels could lie safely under the lee of the shore in the gale, but there was no leave for him. When he parted his chains in a gale, he was sure of fetching up, as he described it, on the shores of Cape Cod or Martha's Vineyard or on the reefs of Nantucket Shoals. His orders, he said, were to go up or down, by which was no doubt meant that he should either sink or go ashore, rather than drift about and thus mislead the passing mariner. Captain Gardiner lost two ships during his long term of service, but saved his crew both times and was frequently adrift in the gale. Once he was compelled to make an involuntary cruise of 42 days, during which he says he was adrifting all around the lot. While on his station, he was often run down in thick weather, and the honest old sailor waxed indignant when he described the ignorance exhibited by passing skippers of the position of their vessels. On one occasion, the weather being thick, he was struck by a full-rigged ship a glancing blow, but powerful enough to drive the bows of the vessel into the pantry of the light ship. 
I come a running on deck, said Captain Gardner, describing the incident, and I sings out to the captain, what are you trying to do? I'm a trying to find the cross rip, says he. Well, you found it now, and the light ship too, says I, and can you just keep out of my pantry, for you ain't got no business in there. Then he sheared off. The old Captain Brown, once ship owner and a famous sailor, raises watermelons, which he peddles about the villager at the dock. His frequent companion was Darkie Rube, an old Negro sailor who, from herbs whose name he would never divulge, made what he called universal drops. Bain and Antidote thus walked side by side, and often the customer for one bought the other purely for a joke, which thus perpetuated itself. It is the hospital that holds the most pathetic cases, the sad endings of the invalids, paralytic or dying of sheer exhaustion, whose voices once rung out above the howling of the storm, and who have faced danger in every form. Saddest of all is the corner of the pavilion where the few insane wait their release. To tell the story of even one would mean many pages. Even for the most contented, it is a dreary life, and of late it has been much questioned if the enormous income of nearly half a million dollars yearly might not better be divided up into pensions, and thus allow its beneficiaries to live with relatives and have more humane interests than are now possible. At present, the snug harbor remains the only institution of the kind in the world. No sailors from steam vessels are admitted. Naturally, Captain Randall had no premonition of the change so near, and though, as in a recent case, sailors on steam vessels may have served a lifetime, they are not eligible. Two men who had been forty years in the Navy, one of them in the fire room, had regularly paid from their wages the dues required from all sailors for the Marine Hospital, but had saved nothing. Both were rejected and cast adrift, and this case has attracted such attention that it is hoped it may serve to bring about an alteration of the system. In the meantime, 800 find a peaceful home, and names are always waiting to fill vacancies and take their turn on the benches under the great trees, where through all the summer days the old salts sit, their jaws keeping time, and their eyes fixed on the distant horizon. End of chapter 23